This program is funded through a more perfect union initiative of the National Endowment for the Humanities. With me today are the Honorable Joseph Meyer, the Honorable Randy Smith, Bennett Briggs, and acting as today's moderator, Stephen Kenyon. We would also like to express our appreciation for the generous support from the Ninth District Court for a community grant to support this year's Teacher Institute, focusing on a more perfect union. And Steve, I turn it over to you. Thanks, Doug. Uh, my name is Steve Kenyon. I'm the clerk of the courts for the United States District and Bankruptcy Courts for the, the District of Idaho. We're excited to be here today with, with all of you. Um, I'm going to introduce our, our, our presenters today. Uh, first, we'll hear from Bennett Briggs, who's a career law clerk for the Chief Judge David Nye of the U.S. District Court. Uh, Bennett's been with uh, Judge Nye for a little over six years. And, uh, and then we'll hear next from uh, Chief Judge Joe Meyer from the United States Bankruptcy Court. He's the Chief Judge of the United States Bankruptcy Court for the District of Idaho. He was uh, appointed to the bench in 2018. And, uh, and then we'll hear from Judge Smith, Judge Randy Smith from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, who was appointed by President George Bush in 2007 to that, that position. So we'll take it in that order. So Bennett, go ahead. Well, thank you, uh, everyone. I'm grateful, excited to be here with you today. As Steve mentioned, my name is Bennett Briggs, and I currently work for Chief Judge, Chief District Judge Nye here in the District of Idaho. Um, I am a licensed attorney. I went to law school. I took the bar, passed the bar. And um, the easiest way to think of my job is that I assist <clears throat> Judge Nye um, in his duties as a judge in preparing for hearings and in researching and analyzing legal matters. Uh, what I've been asked to talk about today um, is kind of just who we are as a federal district court. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll start with a disclaimer, which is that I've condensed what is, a, what is about two semesters worth of law school classes into 10 minutes. So, so please don't feel, uh, uh, you probably won't be prepared to go out and pass the bar after my portion of the presentation today, but hopefully it gives you an overview of, um, of us. So one of the questions that I get frequently asked by family and friends um, is, hey, did you hear about such and such a case? Or is that in front of your court? Or, hey, I got called in for jury duty. I guess I'll see you soon. Um, more often than not, what people are referring to uh, are actually state court matters. Um, in, the, in Idaho, every county has a, state, has a courthouse, and many of you have likely been called into jury duty before, or maybe you've had uh, legal matters that you've had to take care of. Um, and so most people are, are frequently more familiar with state court. In Idaho, as you can see on this first slide, there are three federal courthouses. The top left of the screen is the Boise Courthouse. The top right is our beautiful courthouse up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And the bottom left is the courthouse in Pocatello. And at these three courthouses, um, you know, this is where federal legal work, uh, federal court matters happen. And so, uh, again, a lot of the times when I'm talking to people, they've mostly been involved in state court proceedings, whereas with uh, federal court matters, you're going to end up in one of these three buildings. In the criminal context, so I, I guess I should start by saying most of what we deal with in court falls into generally two buckets. One would be criminal law matters, and the other is civil law matters. Uh, on the criminal side, the easiest way to think about it is, did you break a federal law? Uh, a lot of the crimes that probably come to mind, um, uh, murder, rape, assault, battery, arson, those types of things are actually all state law crimes. And so if convicted or, or charged with one of those matters, you're looking towards, again, those state court proceedings, um, with, with one exception that I'll explain here in a second. 
Um, the bulk of what we see in federal court having to deal with criminal law are drug cases. Um, you think of your Schedule One and Schedule Two controlled substances, and obviously uh, possessing, uh, importing, shipping, transaction, uh, you know, dealing with those substances is a violation of federal law. And so those are the types of drug cases we see. Um, we also, you'll see my second category here, I just kind of broadly say guns. <laughs> it is a federal law uh, by law to possess a firearm if you've been previously convicted of certain crimes. Um, and so we see a lot of those types of cases. Um, also immigration cases, we deal with a lot of that. Um, white collar crimes, uh, you know, embezzlement, fraud, those types of matters are a lot of what we deal with in federal court. Um, unfortunately, child pornography is something that we uh, deal with. Um, and then I, I mentioned that there was a caveat to my earlier statement that most of the crimes you think of are state crimes. The exception to that are crimes that occur on Indian reservations, uh, because that is federal land. The federal government has jurisdiction over those. And so those crimes I previously mentioned, murder, rape, assault, battery, um, that would typically fall within kind of the state's purview if they take place <clears throat> on an Indian reservation, and there are uh, quite a few in Idaho, um, then that becomes something that the federal court uh, deals with. Uh, the last thing that I'll mention, which is kind of interesting, that some of you may actually have uh, experience with are called Central Violations Bureau um, Matters. Uh, you know, you may not think or deal with a lot of these other things, but actually I've had numerous friends <laughs> and family call me and say, hey, I got this ticket. But it says it's a federal ticket. It's not just like a, a speeding ticket or something. What do I do? Um, this is probably a Central Violations Bureau incident, which um, could be something that takes place on the Forest Service ground. Let's say that you take your ATV off of the, uh, off of the prescribed trail or maybe um, <clears throat> something that happens in a national park um, or maybe a, even as simple as maybe a, a fire where, wild, or where um, fire burning isn't allowed. Some of those types of things, again, because they take place on federal land, uh, they, they, they come up to us here in federal court. So that's kind of the nitty gritty of the criminal side that we deal with. And I will say that as a law clerk, again, I work for Judge Nye and I help him prepare for hearings and things and do legal analysis for him. A lot of the time that we spend in court, that is to say, literally in the courtroom, uh, you know, kind of battling it out or listening to attorneys battle it out is on the criminal side because they have, uh, again, many of you know the rights that criminal defendants are afforded under the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment, and a lot of those have to take place in person. And so a lot of our in-court, in-person time is spent on criminal matters. I'm gonna go next to civil uh, disputes. So this is converse, uh, or opposite of what I just said, this is the bulk of what we spend kind of in our offices doing, uh, researching and writing on civil cases. And as the name suggests, these matters that come before the court don't result in jail time. Um, these are civil disputes between parties. Uh, the first thing that I'll mention is that, uh, you know, we, this is kind of hard to explain. And again, I'm, I'm apologize, I'm condensing a lot here. Um, there are certain cases that could be filed and adjudicated in state court or federal court. Um, we have jurisdiction over some things, state court have jurisdiction over some things, and there is an overlap there. Um, and so sometimes, and I will say even back on the criminal matter, some of you may be well familiar with that a lot of drug cases are prosecuted in state court. Um, the difference 
at least there usually has to do with quantity, um, the sheer just volume of, of drugs involved. Um, on the civil side, uh, in kind of a like manner, uh, if the amount in controversy, that is to say the amount at issue in the dispute is less than $75,000 and the parties are all from Idaho, um, that could be heard in, in Idaho state court. Um, if in fact the amount of controversy, let's say it's a contract or a dispute or the damages that a person wants is, is anything more than $75,000. So that's why I have here $75,000 and one cent. And the parties are uh, diverse. That is to say, maybe they're from different jurisdictions. One's from Idaho and one's from Oregon. Then that's a case that we could hear in federal court. Um, the other thing that we have what's called original jurisdiction or exclusive jurisdiction over are federal questions. Um, these are the types of cases that are that you see a lot in the news, um, where somebody is maybe challenging a federal statute, or some of kind of the more hot button issues dealing with same sex marriage, um, abortion, gun rights, um, anything that has to do with equal protection amongst or due process of a person's civil rights and liberties. Those things are all going to be federal uh, issues because they deal with the federal constitution. Um, the one thing that I also want to mention that I think is really interesting as part of this job is that it's it's so diverse. You know, the things that I've just summarized in a few minutes, um, they really hit every spectrum of the legal world. Uh, it's not uncommon for me to come into work and deal with a criminal matter in the morning, um, then transition to working on maybe a civil contract dispute between two large organizations in the afternoon, and then by the evening maybe be working on a judicial challenge uh, to an Idaho statute that's recently been enacted. And so that's why I think it's a fascinating job, um, but also just a fascinating uh, profession. And here in the federal courts, we get to see a lot of that. The other thing that we uh, do in federal court, which, uh, which is my segue here, is uh, the federal courts deal with all of the bankruptcy proceedings that happen um, in the state. And so with that, I'm going to transition to Judge Meyer. And if you have questions uh, now or later about some of the kind of the overview that I've given you, uh, we'll take those up. But Judge Meyer, it's all yours. All right. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me to this program this afternoon. Uh, I, my pleasure to be here. So why is uh, bankruptcy in federal court? Uh, why am I, why do I, my courthouse in the federal courthouse? It's because the United States Constitution, the founding fathers thought it was important that with respect to bankruptcies, that uh, it be uh, it be a uniform law, a federal law, and uh, you'll find it in Article One, uh, Chapter Eight, uh, or Section Eight, is uh, where Congress, uh, back when the Constitution was formulated, said that uh, that uh, that there will be a bankruptcy court and it will be controlled by federal law. So, what's a bankruptcy and what's going on in a bankruptcy? Basically, a bankruptcy. Uh, can be made up of, of, of really two things going on in any bankruptcy case. One is rights to property. The, uh, the, the debtor, the person that filed bankruptcies, rights to property, and then creditors' rights to property. The second thing that's going on in a bankruptcy is, uh, is debts. Uh, the, uh, wh whether the debt's going to survive or not, we call that a discharge. And who's not? Uh, and so bankruptcy courts deal with those two things. And once again, the Constitution comes into play because, as many of you know that have studied the Constitution a little bit, 
uh, Congress, uh, in, or I should say that the founding fathers have this, what they call the takings clause. You can't take somebody's property without uh, compensation. And then there's the, the commerce clause or contracts clause. It, and basically in, in bankruptcy court, we're doing an altering contracts uh, all the time. In other words, uh, a good example is the the, uh, the borrower is signed a promissory note that says I'll pay that uh, debt that I borrowed from you in full within within a certain amount of time. That in bankruptcy court, uh, a lot of times that that time period is altered, the terms are altered, maybe the interest rate is altered, all with the idea that we're going to facilitate uh, payment. I said there are different types of bankruptcy. In the state of Idaho, basically, you're going to run into three types. One is what most people think about a bankruptcy. It's called a liquidation, a Chapter 7. And, and what's going on in that is that the individual that files bankruptcy takes all of the property, hands it over to a, a person called a Chapter 7 trustee, and then that trustee liquidates that property, turns it into cash, and pays as much as he or she could to the, the, the creditors who filed claims in the case. And these are by and far the largest number of cases that are uh, filed in the District of Idaho. The next types of cases are what are known as wage earner reorganization plans or in chapter 13. In essence, the way these works are a person files bankruptcy and they take what they could be putting in their savings account each and every month and they make a payment to their creditors with the hope that within uh, three to five years, they can pay some or all of the debts that they've incurred back. Uh, if they get some pressure taken off of them, they're making short-term debts, long-term debts, and they're facilitating a payment by utilizing what we call their disposable income. And then the third type of reorganization is the, is the business reorganization. Uh, chapter 11. Uh, in essence, the 11 works the same way as a 13. Uh, the, the bankruptcy case is filed. Uh, the, creditor is, uh, the creditors that are chasing the business are, are held off, uh, stopped from taking action, and the debtor is given the opportunity to formulate a plan as to how that uh, debtor is going to get out of the mess that it's found itself in. Uh, these are called reorganization cases, and the, the theory behind them is that we're going to uh, we're going to keep these businesses alive. They're going to continue to keep the employees they had, or maybe at some reduced amount. And again, the operations of that business, maybe as changed, will facilitate enough income not only to pay their ongoing obligations, but also. To, to address the debts that the, the company had when it filed bankruptcy. And a subpart of that reorganization are what are known as chapter 12 or family farmers. And of course, in a rural uh, agricultural state like Idaho, we see a lot of those. These are designed to give farmers the opportunity to keep their farm and to deal with their in, indebtedness. Some chapter 11, uh, some companies that have filed chapter 11 that are still around United Airlines, uh, uh, American Airlines uh, are two uh, big examples of companies that filed a Chapter 11 bankruptcy and are still operating uh, today. Texaco is another example of a, of a big company that filed a bankruptcy and it is still operating today. So some are successful, 
in in uh, in staying alive and continuing to have a business after they exit the the bankruptcy case. I said that uh, bankruptcy cases consist of of basically two things going on: property. Let me talk a little bit about property uh, here. Uh, I will tell you that the theory behind bankruptcy, or at least my my view of it, is that um, of course in America we live in a uh, in a uh, capitalist society, and so uh, individuals are encouraged to take risks um, and uh, and financial risks. And and uh, the the yang to that is that is that uh, we have the bankruptcy code to facilitate uh, addressing um, the, the risk. And, and rather than having debtors prisons, uh, we're going to have this process called bankruptcy that not only may provide some relief to the individual that incurred the debts, but also may provide a forum for creditors that are chasing this, uh, this debtor um, to obtain some relief without being the first to the courthouse. In other words, it's going to facilitate liquidation of property so that all creditors will share in a, in a pro rata basis um, and each will get the same uh, slice of the pie, if you would, rather than first come, first serve. Uh, many of you may ask, well, I know, I know neighbors, I know friends who have filed a bankruptcy and still are living in a home or still are driving a car and doesn't look like anything affected them. In bankruptcy, we have what are known as exemptions for individuals and, and they basically break down into three categories. These are, this is property that the, actually the Idaho legislature said, we want people to keep no matter how much trouble they've gotten themselves into. In other words, creditors can't, trustees can't take this property away and they, they fall into three categories, these exemptions. The first and the biggest one is, is a retirement plan. So social security, 401ks, IRAs, anything that's in a plan that's a retirement plan will be exempt from creditors. In other words, a, a debtor can file bankruptcy and would get to keep the retirement plan as long as it is a retirement plan. Why? Well, we want them not to become a ward of the state. We want them to, um, to have a retirement in the future. The next uh, exemption is what's known as the homestead. Everybody living in the state of Idaho, as long as they're living in a, in a place that they call their principal residence gets $175,000 of equity. In other words, if your house is worth $175,000 or less, they're not gonna sell your house out from under you. Uh, you get to keep this house by virtue of this exemption. Most people, if not, I don't know what the statistics are, but I would get 98% of the people don't own their house outright, they have a mortgage, right? And so oftentimes we may have a house that's worth $400,000, they have a mortgage that's $250,000. And so that the individual that lives in that house can keep it by making that mortgage payment. Uh, and, uh, and then that $175,000 is protected. And then, and then finally, there's a bunch of, of smaller exemptions. Uh, for example, each debtor gets a car worth $10,000. Each debtor gets a, a gun worth um, $1,000. Each uh, household goods are usually exempt, meaning they're not going to sell your stuff, the couches, the beds, the bureaus, that type of thing, etc. And so uh, this, this bunch of stuff 
allows a debtor to file bankruptcy. Uh, the, the property rights is the debtor keeps these things that are called exemptions and they're put over here in the debtor's pile and everything else that's not exempt is liquidated by this trustee who again takes the money. The second half of a bankruptcy case is what is known as the, the debt side. And here we have concepts in bankruptcy, including what are known as priority. Uh, that is the Congress has said, these debts get paid before any other debts. And the biggest priority is child support and, and, uh, and spousal support. Those get paid first before anybody else gets paid. Then guess what? Uh, the taxes, uh, the federal and state government gets their uh, taxes paid before anyone else. And then, um, and then secured creditors, I talked about property rights, a person that you gave a lien to. In other words, you, you gave them a lien on your car, or you gave them a lien on the house, or you gave them a lien on a horse. Um, then those secured creditors get the value of that security. In other words, they can't just take that property right away. That's again, violates the takings clause of the constitution. It must be addressed in some way, either by paying that creditor off what it's owed or by giving that asset back to the creditor or paying that creditor over time with interest uh, on, on that asset. The balance of the debts, uh, usually what are known as general unsecured creditors go into a pot and they share, share and share alike the, the money that this trustee generates from liquidating the non-exempt assets. And hopefully if you're lucky, and this is unusual, but if you're lucky, there's enough money there that the trustee generates from the sale of assets, maybe some liquid, uh, some litigation, uh, maybe some tax refunds. Um, hopefully there's, there's a finite number of creditors and you're getting a hundred cents on the dollar. That's rare. Um, normally creditors get less than that, but in order to participate in the bankruptcy, they have to file a thing called a claim. What a, what a debtor, what an individual's interested in is, is getting this, this document called a discharge order. A discharge order is an order entered by the bankruptcy court that says all those debts that are listed by you with certain exceptions are discharged, meaning that creditors can never chase you again uh, on, those, on those debts. Um, and again, Congress has carved out certain debts which will survive a, a discharge. And, and the biggies there are child support will survive a discharge. Um, um, criminal sanctions such as um, uh, uh, monetary penalties, restitution will survive a discharge. Taxes will survive a, a discharge. And, and again, those are the biggies. Um, um, those of you that are reading the newspapers may see the, the, the discussion that's going on in Congress. Uh, and has been for some time. Uh, student loans uh, can be discharged if a individual comes into the bankruptcy court and asks uh, the bankruptcy court to determine uh, that the uh, that that forcing the debtor to pay that student loans would would be an un, undue hardship on the debtor. Um, this is normally an impossible task for the debtor to prove, meaning that that. Uh, student loans will survive. Congress talks about forgiving student loans or maybe changing the analysis in the bankruptcy courts to enable some debtors who could never pay the student loan off uh, to pay them off. But in general, uh, those, of, uh, those students of yours that are funding their, 
higher education through student loans, they can expect that those loans will survive and they will not be able to eliminate them, at least in, in a federal uh, bankruptcy court proceeding. Um, and um, that's, that's a very quick uh, summary of the way the, the bankruptcy court works. Uh, once a case is filed, any case that's pending, in other words, in state court or in federal court, must come to the bankruptcy court. There can't be litigation that's, that's ongoing against the, uh, the debtor. That's all stopped. We call that the automatic stay. Um, and, every, and every dispute must, mount, must now come to the bankruptcy court to be uh, adjudicated. Uh, and with that, uh, that's uh, in a 15 minutes or less is a, uh, is a description of what I've been doing for the last four and a half years as a judge and, and for the last 35 years as, a, as an attorney in the, in the District of Idaho. Um, and so I'll turn it back to the moderator unless, uh, unless now is the time for questions. We'll hold the questions till the end. Uh, and so we'll now go to hear from Judge Randy Smith. Thank you very much. Uh, Bennett, uh, Judge Meyer, Steve, Doug, uh, they saved the, uh, the old man till the end here. Uh, and uh, I am supposed to determine, if you will, give you some idea about the role of the judiciary in forming a more perfect union, since that is the topic of forming a more perfect union that you are trying to address. And I want to do that by uh, stepping back a little bit with each of you and uh, letting you know how we see ourselves in forming that more perfect union in using the district court that Bennett has explained has explained to you or in using the district court that Judge Meyer has explained to you. But what we're really talking about is what does the judiciary do to help form this more perfect union? Now, a central tenant of the Madisonian democracy or in other words, a central tenant that Madison used in forming the Constitution is that the concentration of power poses a threat to individual autonomy and freedom. And therefore, we should not concentrate power in any, any one part of the government or any one government. So, with this central tenant, then the Constitution was formed. And when the Constitution was formed, it put in it this, if you will, this idea that there should not be any concentration of power, either in the states or in the federal government. There shouldn't be any concentration of power in either the legislative, executive, or judicial branch. Now the separation of powers between the national government and the state government is a matter of, well, you're not supposed to have all government in any one of those. And so as has already been explained by Judge Meyer in article one, section eight, it outlines the type of powers that the federal government has. 
In the Amendment 10, it suggests that if the federal government doesn't have the power and if the Constitution doesn't forbid the states from having the power, then the states can take the power if the people will give it to them. So the first way that we divide power is between the state and the federal government. You have here today three federal, federal employees, two judges, one clerk representing the district court. Those are the federal government's ideas. Now the state government also has a court system that works in a similar way to this federal system. But again, it is the first division of power between the state and the federal government. The second division of power, the next, second division of power is going to be a separation of power between legislative, executive, and judicial. Now, why do I say that? Because, well, when you were in school, you were in government class, you were asked, what are the three branches of government? They're legislative, executive, and judicial. Well, the legislative has certain power, the executive has certain power, and judicial has certain power. And if we're gonna divide those powers, then at that point, we're going to be able to make it so that we can have no threat to individual autonomy or freedom. So what does the legislature do? This is the legislative checks in checks and balances. They make the laws, they establish the courts, they set out our power, they have the power of impeachment, they raise the revenue, meaning that they set the salaries of the judges, they do trials of impeachment in the Senate, they override the veto if the, if the executive wants to veto their laws, they have the power to approve the judges and they have the power to approve the treaties. So let's move to the, to the executive. The executive check is if the legislature makes the laws, then they have the power to veto. And they have the power to appoint the judges, meaning that they have a check on the judges. And they also have the power to make the treaties. So if you see this, you see the executive appointing the judges, the legislature approving the judges, the legislature setting the salary of the judges, and then we get to the judicial check. The judicial check that was set in the Constitution is that judges cannot just go out and do whatever they want to do, argue certain, whatever their opinions are, or argue what they think the government ought to do. That's not their role. The judicial check is only in hearing cases or controversies. And that's the thing that Bennett talked to you about. What cases or controversies can they hear? That's also what Judge Meyer talked to you about. They can hear bankruptcy cases, but they can only hear these cases if they come to the court. In other words, they can't go make up a case. Like we have laws that are passed now and every so often there are laws that are passed and 
people get aggravated about what those laws are. The Congress has passed them, the president signed them. Why not just go over to the court and say, do you approve or disapprove? That isn't the way it works. The court cannot do that. Our only check is for an individual or individuals to file a case suggesting that those laws are somehow bad or those laws are somehow misinterpreted or those laws are somehow unconstitutional. That's the only way that the judiciary gets involved. And therefore their only check is by having the people bring a case or controversy to the judges. Now, the judges were hit with a case right, uh, not far down the line in constitutional uh, history, a case called Marbury versus Madison. In that case, there were some uh, judges who'd been appointed in Washington, D.C., and they'd been appointed by President Adams, but President Jefferson didn't want to set them in as judges because they were all a part of a different party than President Jefferson. And so he says, even though you've been appointed by the president, even though the Senate has approved you, I'm not gonna give you the papers to be a judge. And therefore, I'm not gonna put you in as a judge in Washington, DC. So Marbury, who was one of those people wanting to be the judge, sued Madison, who was the Secretary of State in order to get Madison to give them the papers so they could be judges. Well, the, the Supreme Court took that case and looked through it, went through, tried to decide what to do, and in fact made a separate constitutional check for the judiciary. And this is the check to interpret the Constitution. The duty of the judiciary is to say what the law is. Only an act of Congress can correct an, inter uh, can correct an erroneous interpretation of the law by the judiciary, but only a constitutional amendment can correct an erroneous interpretation of the Constitution by the judges. So what it did in Marbury versus Madison is it said, not only does the judiciary have a check in only having cases and controversies, but guess what? They are the final check in interpreting the constitution. That say, being said, in United States versus Nixon, and all of you will remember when President Nixon had some papers he didn't want to turn over to the Congress, in that case, the Supreme Court said, the judicial power of the United States cannot be shared by the executive any more than the executive can share its power to veto with the judiciary. So the judiciary under our system, in order to form a more perfect union and be this check, if you will, on the power of the executive and the legislative has become then the interpreter of the Constitution. Now, being the last interpreter of the Constitution is an, is an extremely powerful power. 
that the judiciary gave to themselves in Marbury versus Madison. Nobody gave it to them. Je President Jefferson didn't fight it because he got what he wanted. The judges said, hey, the law that's been enacted has been enacted wrong, and therefore, Marbury, you cannot get your commission. You've got to start your case in the original case of jurisdiction, and so therefore, we can't give you what you want. So President Jefferson got he wanted, what he wanted and did not fight the fact that the judges had the power to interpret the Constitution. And so therefore, in forming this more perfect union, they have become the interpreters. Why? Because after Marbury versus Madison, there've been case after case, including the one I shared with you, United States versus Nixon, which suggests they do have that power and it's become precedent. And therefore, that has been a check that the judiciary has used over time since Marbury. So what limits are there? Well, the limits are that we can only start talking about the Constitution if we have a case or controversy. And therefore, the case or controversy has to be brought by one of you, a member of the public, or many of you members of the public. And you then bring this case. Now, where does the case begin? <clears throat> as was the case with Marbury versus Madison. And was, as was the case, as I told you about legislative checks, it's the power of the Congress to determine what courts have these cases. It's the power of the Congress to tell what power each one of those courts has. And that's how the bankruptcy court was, was started. And that's why Judge Meyer has the power of the bankruptcy court, because Congress set it up. That's the same thing they've done in the district court. And that's why Bennett has a job as he works for a district judge Nye, because they set up the district court and they are the court of original jurisdiction. What does that mean? That means they hear the case to begin with. That means they're the ones who hear the first part of the case. And though I'm on appeal, and though I am an appellate judge, when the case comes to me, I can't just start that case over again. I can only undo what's done in those lower courts, in the district court and in the bankruptcy court, if they've made a bad legal decision, if they have misinterpreted the law or they have misapplied that law. Very seldom can I do anything about the facts. Very seldom can I do anything about the jury verdict. All of those I've given great deference into the lower courts. And instead, the, the uh, appellate courts only get a chance to review to see that they've done the case law correctly. Now that's a limit then on appellate courts and a big, if you will, a big power that the courts of original jurisdiction have like the bankruptcy court and the district court. Now, as Bennett has suggested to you, 
the district court only takes cases of federal law, cases arising under the, under the Constitution, cases arising under the laws and treaties of the United States, cases affecting ambassadors, consuls, and ministers, cases that are on admiralty or maritime, those in which the United States is a party, or those in which the state is a party. Those are federal jurisdiction cases. And then, as Bennett also told you, they can also have move diversity jurisdiction. And those are cases where you have citizens from different states who, and the cases are over 75,000. Now, the 11th Amendment also prohibits actions against the state in federal court unless the state will consent to it. That also is in the Constitution. So as you can tell, though the judiciary has a check in that they can interpret the Constitution, it's not all easy because Congress allotted to itself the right to say when the judiciary can act, what the judiciary can do, and then of course, what pay the judiciary will have. Now the judiciary, knowing that they had problems and knowing that assuming constitutional power was gonna be a very, very enormous power to take has also put together things that limit their ability to decide these constitutional cases. For instance, they will not decide a constitutional issue unless there's no other way to decide the case, unless no other way to decide the case, unless it be a constitutional issue. In other words, if people can get together and put a case before the court system that does not need to establish a constitutional issue, the court will not decide the case. The court decides who may litigate an issue. In other words, unless you're injured, you cannot come to court. You can't come to court to litigate another's injury. You can't come to court to litigate any kind of an injury for other people, but you litigate your own issue. And that's what we call standing, who may litigate the issue. Another thing, if the case has already been decided someone else, someplace else, or the case has already been settled between the parties, the court can't hear that case because the case is moot. And therefore that limits the right of the court to decide the issue. You can't come to court with a premature case. In other words, you can't go down to the judge and say, judge, if I run that stop sign, what will be my fine? The judge will say, run the sign, and we'll be glad to give you the fine. You can't come in and say, well, what am I going to do in this situation? Can I do this, judge? No, we have to have a case or a controversy. It cannot be premature. It cannot be abstract. Then the last thing we do is we limit ourselves to only questions involving law. You cannot come to the court and say, 
Can we go over and fight the Vietnam War? Can we go over and fight in the war, in any war? Can we do this kind of a political thing or that kind of? Those are not cases which the court can hear and not cases in which the court can be involved. If there's a law involved and the law is an injury to you and the case is not already moot, and it's a case that is right there and not premature, then you may bring the case and the court will hear it. And if we can decide it and not decide a constitutional issue, then we will decide the case. So what is our role in forming a more perfect union? Our role in forming this more perfect union is to do what the Constitution suggests we should do. In other words, we only hear a case in controversy. We only interpret the Constitution when we're allowed to interpret the Constitution. And at that point, we can help to form this more perfect union. We don't get out in front on political issues. We don't go advise as to what the government ought to do. We sit back and say, if you have a case or controversy, you bring it to us and we will decide if the law is correctly interpreted, if the law is correctly applied, and at best, and the last issue, if the constitution is being followed. And at that point, we will exercise our jurisdiction or our power. And that's how we become important in forming a more perfect union. And that's how we do what we're supposed to do to make sure we're not a threat to the individual autonomy or freedom. Thank you. Thank you very much, Judge Smith. Thanks for that was that was great. We've got several questions that have come in uh, during this this time, um, and so I'm just going to fire away first. Here's here's one. I'm just going to read this off the screen here. Have the district courts ever served on a case together? Example: Oregon and Idaho courts. Can they ever rule together? Well, frankly, what happens if there's a case? that will include both the district courts, an issue, both an Idaho issue and an Oregon issue, and cases are filed in both of those courts in those different jurisdictions, one can unite those cases in one case and set it in a, in a district court that can hear all of the cases about that particular issue in all of the district courts in those different states. That happens often. And we set up a, a, if you will, a specially appointed judge, district court judge, and sometimes even a circuit judge to do those kind of issues. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Uh, a quick bankruptcy question, uh, Judge Meyer. Um, if I file, a bankruptcy, how long does it does that process take? Well, I'm going to give you a lawyer's answer to that. It depends. Uh, the fastest you can get out of a case 
uh, no asset cases, roughly uh, 90 to 120 days start to finish. Uh, cases that have assets uh, where um, trustees are, are chasing and trying to sell things will normally take uh, up to a year to a year and a half. So the easy cases are done in, in basically four months. The harder cases can last two to three years. Okay. Another question that came in, have you ever had to make a ruling that you disagreed with personally, but felt the law was clear? Yes. I'm sure yeah. that Judge Meyer would have to say yes, too. We are not here to, to put our own biases, our own feelings involved in the situation. And there are many times when we have cases in front of us where the constitutional issue is clear, where the case has been decided once before by another court, the precedent is clear, or where uh, the, if you will, the legislative history, if we have to get to the legislative history is clear. And our job is to promote the constitutional issue that is there and interpret the constitution that has been, as it has been interpreted previously. And that precedent will make it such that that's what we'll do, whether we agree to it or not. For instance, there was a case when I was an Idaho district judge where I had been one of those who had been proponent for term limits. And they, uh, one of those who had been term limited out fought that and came in front of me as a judge. And uh, I had to say that the term limits law that I'd been in, excited about putting together was unconstitutional. And I had to strike it down because I couldn't find anything in the Idaho Constitution, which would suggest that one should not be able to run for office just because one had been in for a long time. So you don't you don't do it on what you think. In fact, that's what you do as part of the judiciary. You give up all of your political motives. You give up all of your religious motives. You give up those motives and you interpret it based on the precedent that's in front of you. Yeah, and I would add, uh, that's exactly right. There's, I can think of two or three instances where it's just hard for me to, to reach the ruling that the law suggests. I don't personally believe it, but that's the oath that I swore. And, and that's why, you, you know, when you read the newspaper and you see folks like uh, Chief Justice Roberts of the U.S. Supreme Court, where he says judges are not Republicans, they're not Democrats, they're judges. Uh, and, and I know some uh, members of the public don't believe it, but it, it, we're, our, we swear that we're gonna uphold the constitution. We don't swear that we're gonna uphold any political bias. So um, it, it's something I know all of my colleagues hold near and dear to their hearts. And, it's, uh, and it, it does happen uh, with frequency that you're asked to decide an issue that you may not necessarily agree with the outcome personally, but the law is the law. Right. Okay, we have one more question here um, for Judge Meyer and Judge Smith. How did you each become a federal judge? Uh, well, uh, from, from my standpoint, bankruptcy judges are appointed by the, uh, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And so 
how I uh, how I became a judge was that I, as I indicated earlier, I practiced law in this area for 30 plus years and had obviously an interest in it. And then uh, I uh, applied. It's a it's not a political appointment. It's a it's a one you apply for and 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 they vet you and. Uh, and ultimately, I was appointed by the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Being on the Ninth Circuit, I will tell you that the Ninth Circuit takes pride in the fact that we appoint the bankruptcy judges in all of the districts. So the Ninth Circuit selects a group of five of us who get together and we have applicants come and then we go search through those applications and we get the, the potential applicants to come and talk to us. And then we select those bankruptcy judges and Judge Meyer was selected uh, on my watch and I'm very happy that he was selected. And uh, that's the way we select a bankruptcy judge. Now, uh, a, a district judge or a... Uh, Court of Appeals judge are selected by the President of the United States and approved by the Senate. Now, uh, at this point, it's just a majority of the Senate who approves those judges. And uh, that's the way the Supreme Court judges are selected as well. Now, how does the President get the names? Well, uh, it depends. I suspect that the senators from the different states are the ones who would suggest the names of the district judges in each state. And I suggest the senators probably selected the Judge Nye for whom Bennett works. On the other hand, the Court of Appeals judges, the senators of each state in the Court of Appeals. So those who are in the Ninth Circuit, those senators would be have a chance to, to suggest to the president the names that he might suggest might pick. And I expect uh, also he has friends and associates right there in Washington, DC, who give him names. And he all probably has also friends in the different areas who give him names. And then he selects the person and then the Senate approves that person. All right, well, we have one minute left. Bennett, I wanna bounce one off of you real quick that came in. Uh, and that was, uh, I thought sovereign, I thought Indian reservations were sovereign. So how can a crime be charged by the, uh, in the federal courts if it's a sovereign nation? The softball. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, like, uh, the short version, the short answer is yes, Indian reservations are uh, considered, uh, considered sovereign nations and they do have tribal courts. Um, the phrase we use is concurrent jurisdiction. So by statute, the, the, the Congress has authorized federal courts to have uh, concurrent jurisdiction there. So we do have jurisdiction over certain matters, uh, again, criminal matters that are uh, violations of federal law. Uh, again, whether you're on a state, whether you're on an Indian reservation, um, whether it happens, Judge Smith mentioned, you know, maritime, there's even things that happen out on the open sea that we deal with. But um, so yes, Indian reservations are sovereign nations. They do have tribal courts who have authority. Um, but then we have concurrent jurisdiction over most of the criminal matters that take place that, that would occur there. Jurisdiction meaning power. You have power, joint power. The Indians will have power in their courts, but also 
the federal government is given joint power over that land on the Indian reservation. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone. Uh, we're out of time here. Uh, hopefully, this was uh, it was fascinating to me. I hope it was uh, as, as interesting to all of you. Uh, Doug, uh, we'll turn the time back over to you. Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you again for all four of you for you know sharing all the information, the wealth and knowledge that you all have. Thank you.